Hey, it's Steve and welcome to Share, a podcast that sets out to do just that. From stories and reflections to ideas and concepts, each episode will dive into a wide range of topics and discussions that come from a journey through life. The simple fact I've discovered is when we share, we empower, not just ourselves, but each other. Are you planning your next holiday? Let the team at Mind and Body Travel inspire you. With a focus on wellness and well-being, the team at Mind and Body Travel can assist you whether you're looking to attend a retreat, test yourself on an adventure, tick off that bucket list trip, or just create a travel itinerary that includes all that you want in a holiday while taking into account all that your mind and body needs. Revolutionising the way people look at holidays and travel, they believe that travel should deliver nourishment for your soul, clarity for your mind, and renewed focus upon your return. So you ready to take off? Then it's time to check in with the team at Mind and Body Travel. Just visit www.mindandbodytravel.com. Just maintaining a pretty intense focus on, you know, what makes you feel good, what makes you laugh, what makes you feel alive, and trying to keep that at the forefront and take action around those things inside of a marriage is going to lead to a much healthier relationship with your spouse than if you think she loves chocolate and flowers and money, and that's what you're trying to bring home every day, thinking that that's going to be a good thing. In this week's episode, I'm truly privileged to be able to sit down with someone who I truly admire for the exceptional man and human being he is. Connecting with him over the last couple of years, I've come to know him as a loyal and loving husband, an extremely proud father, and someone who is open to having and exploring some of the deeper conversations that sometimes we as men shy away from having. It's a wide-ranging conversation, but you're certainly going to want to hear his insights and reflections on life, marriage, kids. And as the founder of Soul Degree, we also discuss the impact his retreats and movement are having on men. Coming all the way from Vermont in the US, let me introduce you to my friend, Chris Robbins. Chris, welcome to Share. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. Coming all the way from Vermont. Yeah, we are far apart from where you're sitting. It's kind of cool, though. Yeah, we're probably a bit far apart in temperatures as well at the moment, I'd say. Uh, Definitely, right? You're coming into your summer down there while we're coming into winter, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yep, heading towards Christmas and the warmer weather, and we've had some storms lately, which is which is a bit interesting. We've got a cyclone that's that's approaching the coast as well, so that makes things interesting. Well, that won't stop Santa Claus. He'll still show up. Of course, of course, <laughs> of course. Well, Chris, we connected with each other probably about 18 months or so ago now, and as the, the modern... I suppose lingo is I slid into your DMs on Instagram and to my surprise, the next day a message came back. So that started a connection and a, and a friendship since then, which I'm eternally grateful for. Yeah, I'm um, me as well. Thank you for reaching out and putting kind of your, your, your mind and heart into that message. I mean, I, it's not like I get bombarded with notes like that but when they come and there's clearly uh, just some curiosity and thought put into it it's uh, hard not to respond (laughs) i wanted to ask you who is chris robbins oh man um changing fast 
as I guess one response that I would have to that. And but I think maybe for the first time, I'm inclined to want to answer that question more from the present than maybe trying to draw upon all of what has been that makes me who I am. But I, Chris Robbins is a kid, like most of us are on the inside, very much finding far more pleasure and connection in who he was in the past. I think Chris today is somebody that really appreciates where he's been and who he's becoming. And also maybe even just, I think one of the aspects of who I am today is is not trying to rush the process of becoming who Chris Robbins was, was forever somebody trying to be someone he wasn't, at least for many years, unbeknownst to me. But I, I'm, I'm much more loosely wound. I, I wouldn't say that historically I've been an anxious person, but certainly with a mind that's fluttering around at a rapid pace. And I, and I think I, who I am today is certainly somebody that has slowed that down or uh, helped myself maybe learn how to slow down just to take in what's in front of me. My dad used to talk a lot about being present in the moment. And and I think that there were times where he was, but looking back on it, he was somebody that I think maybe talked about it more than he was able to actually put it into practice. And that's not to say that I didn't struggle with that for 40 plus years of my life. I think I really did. But having put two and two together with his own experience and done a lot of work over the last decade to unravel some of that frenetic thinking or trying or striving that has helped me get to a place where I feel like I'm better at that, a lot better at um, at least being conscious of the value of slowing it down and being able to take in what's occurring now. So tell me, the Chris Robbins that is today, talk to me about some of the reflections and some of the stumbling blocks that unpacked and drilled down into the layers of you know life that has kind of brought you to who you are now. Mm. You know, I think that it sounds really cliche to to talk about following one's heart, which I guess is just another term for your intuition, listening to to that as it speaks to us every day. And I think that 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 definitely was a stumbling block for me that I didn't listen to I was excellent at justifying what I what I said was going through my head, but it wasn't really tied to my heart. You know, I was 
I think I made a lot of choices in the past, particularly around career and profession, trying to be the good provider and husband. And and I made a lot of choices that were reactive, naturally money-driven at times. And, you know, I was having a conversation the other day with a with a friend where they were kind of like, oh, well, how'd you get to be doing what you're doing today? And like, looking back on it, I really did find the most joy and freedom in being with others in nature and not only finding myself or finding aspects of myself, but also finding myself be able to take in others and like the people that I was with when I was in a natural setting. And I did that as a kid. And then I did that in college with spending time out in the Rockies with the National Outdoor Leadership School. And and then when I got out of college, I was guiding bike trips in France, which was a very, you know, there was some facilitation and some just taking in your surroundings at a slower pace with people that have a sense of adventure and uh, lots of opportunity to get curious in their lives and and vice versa. And these were all things that just made me so happy and lit up and alive. But each one of them over the years, I sort of discounted as being silly or childish or not what quote unquote grown-ups do. That that was that was no way to make a man of oneself to be doing those things. And so a lot of them kind of came and went and I tamped them down and justified why they were silly or stupid or I needed to put a suit and coat and tie on and work in a high rise in a in a city or whatever my you know, my vision was for what I thought I needed to do as a, as a young professional. And so I didn't listen, you know, to some of those things that were really, I think, more important to me than, than I realized. You know, I also think maybe another stumbling block, and I, I'm generalizing, but just going too fast. Like I talk about slowing down, but I, I just mean that in my pursuit to get it right, I was very quick to be making decisions or drawing conclusions or moving on to the next thing. And even when I got into the restaurant business, which I was in for 10 or yeah, 10, 12 years, it was a success until it wasn't. And part of the unraveling of that business and reasons why it maybe brought me and my partner to our knees was that we were trying to grow fast. <laughs> it was like, you know, our first one was awesome. And we were like, okay, great. We got this. We'll open another, open another. Second one wasn't doing well. Tried to open another, then launched a separate business. Like we were, we were moving faster than we probably should have. And you know, you could call that a lack of patience or whatever, but I think that that has bit me in the ass 
in the past, or as you say, sort of a hurdle, some of these learnings. Uh, I think that the maybe one of the things that has helped bring me to where I am is, and by no means do I think I've figured it out, but one of the things that's been helpful for me is in putting some of the pieces together with what my relationship was and wasn't with my family and my parents and my dad in particular. And after he died, I didn't give it much thought. My dad and I had a great relationship while he was alive. And, but after he died, um, I did not grieve his death immediately. I didn't really, I don't think I really knew how to do that or what that even looked like. And so I glossed it over. I poured myself into the business that I was in as probably a way to ignore the loss. And it was only, you know, six, eight years after he passed that I really started to reflect a little bit on his own life, my upbringing with him, and then subsequently my own. And, you know, that that was helpful to really understand kind of what my dad as a corporate executive lived through and what he was struggling with, one of which I think was this thing sort of derivative of depression called dysthymia, which is like, uh, the way I describe it is just not a, it's not a deep, dark depression. It's like a low grade, long lasting fueled by this narrative that you haven't quite measured up or it's not quite good enough. And by all measures, my dad in his lifetime and his career just crushed it. I mean, crushed it. But he did go to his grave not feeling great about what he had accomplished. And I think without even knowing it, much like our parents' generations were, you know, they had nobody was diagnosing that stuff or even knew about it or pursuing therapy or whatever it was. And so I think he actually did suffer from dysthymia without knowing it. And some of those puzzle pieces for me were helpful in bringing clarity to moments of my own life where I found myself down and out and making some of the choices that I was making. You know, I think another stumbling block, which I still haven't figured out a great word for what this is. There is a word for it out there that I use, but I don't really like it. But when I got out of the restaurant business and I was pretty banged up, having felt like the thing was a failure, having felt like I had let down lots of lots of investors and let myself down, let my family down. I it was the first time Mel and I and her career was starting to take off. I was kind of working the the back end of her business. So I was I was being her chief financial officer, if you will. But really what we had been doing up until that moment was constantly juggling everything else, including the kids, kind of 50-50. I'll get this kid here and you get that kid here and you go do the grocery shopping and I'll do this. And we made a decision at that point to have me one 
hundred percent take over everything related to the house and home and the family. And so that she could completely free herself up from that and focus on her career. And there was a couple years there that I guess I would call a hurdle as you use it, where because I had grown up in an environment that was the polar opposite of dad being home and getting me off the bus or whatever, or making me a sandwich or taking me to the doctor. I just immediately, of course, I assumed that responsibility. It made the most sense for me and Mel and our relationship, but it felt like a major league demotion. And, you know, I found myself looking around uh, as men can do in society, thinking like, this is not our job. Like our job is supposed to be bringing home the bacon. And, and so that was, that was a really profound experience and moment in my life where suddenly I found myself being asked to provide something other than money. And not that my family based it, you know, they weren't as baseless as that, like, hey, Chris, bring home the money and everything will be fine. But still, it was like, that was the one thing that was not my responsibility. And so things like being there, (laughs) just being a listener or a hugger or, you know, an egg maker or whatever was a completely new experience for me and one that of course changed the dynamic in a major way between myself and the relationship I had with the whole rest of my family, Mel, but all, but mostly the the kids. And it also just taught me like that there is a whole nother, there's just so many different ways to be a father, which I, again, was living in this kind of myopic mindset and some of that was influenced by my upbringing. Some of it was influenced by what I thought was my financial obligation on this planet kind of thing. As you know, I, I had the similar experience as you, hitting burnout, depression, fatigue, anxiety. And for a good year or two, I sat there probably in a little bit of resentment and guilt, kind of thinking, hang on, I'm not, I'm not providing, I'm not this. And then one day I sat there and I went, hang on, what dad gets to spend more time with their kids? Like this is a, this is a new novel idea. I, I turned it from resentment and guilt into gratitude and that changed my mind, you know. But as you'd know and, and you'd know in your and Mel's relationship is that it does change the dynamic. So when you're doing all these things with the kids, doing all the things that maybe Mel even like to have done, right? She's off busy doing stuff. And there's sometimes a little bit of a resentment that I found come back that, well, hang on, oh, 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 I'd like to make dinner one night or, oh, you took the kids to open their bank account. Oh, I wanted to do that. These little things that were Mm -hmm. happening and you kind of got to see the point of view and it it, it was tough over that time because I couldn't work to the capacity that I had and I'd always been a worker but I had to slip into that role and accept that my role was okay for now I'm a stay-at-home dad yeah take some adjustment for 
for everyone. And there was a little bit of that. Yeah, I wish I could have done that. I wish I could have done this with Mel. I think, but I think back to your question about like what brings me to who I am today. I think some of that experience did force me to, uh, I think, slow down my own processing of all that was going on around me. Not because I was dealing with kids, but just like it, it forced a different attitude and outlook and even problem solving and the the whole deal. And so I think that that also helped me take the blinders off a little bit because mm. I think I think for many years there I was I was very focused and because what I fo- was focused on was not always going to my expectations I lived very on edge or fearful or wondering if I was, you know, getting it right, doing it well enough, living up and delivering on what I thought maybe other people were expecting of me also. Yeah. Chris, your life can be a little bit more public than than others. Tell me about the vulnerability, the deep resilience and the understanding that you and Mel have in your relationship because I think it's very, it's obviously very open in the way that you discuss things and very public, I suppose. I'd love you to talk to me about how did you get to that? How did you unpack that? Well, when I was a little kid, my parents in the 70s participated in some of what was called EST at the time. It was run by a guy named Warner Earhart. And it was one of the early personal development seminars, if you will, that were being offered. In his case, he was doing it in like hotel rooms in New York and LA. And for for many who participated, it was quite transformational. And for my parents at the time, they a lot of their lessons drawn were about transparency and trust and speaking openly and that this was a, a key solution to resolving conflict or sort of living a more peaceful existence. And anyway, years went by and then I'm in my 20s. I meet Mel. We're in New York City and a company called Landmark Education had essentially bought the rights to this this body of work. And Landmark was leading these seminars called the Forum and other seminars all over the world. And Mel and I started taking a few of these in New York, and it ended up becoming quite a a fun and lively community that we spent time with together. And we attended lots of their different seminars and led a few of them, trained to be leaders in them. And that was definitely, that kind of lit a pretty hot fuse on just this notion of being able to look within and self-reflect and see situations or circumstance from different angles, kind of taking what some would maybe call a an integral world view on things. And that I think really that set us up well to have a baseline of trust for ourselves. 
And I think that that just grew over the years without us even knowing it. I mean, you got to work on it. It's like a muscle. And we did. And I think to couple that with a lot of struggle. And look, you know, I'm not saying we were bloodied under a bridge, but we've been through it like we've both been through a dozen different jobs, careers, industries, whatever you want to call it, Mel, even more so. We've been through it together. We've had kids through it together. We've almost lost our home. We've really, we've seen community relationships bottom out. And again, not like anybody else hasn't experienced these things, but they were trying for us over the years. And that I think forced a level of certainly, I would say vulnerability, although I even think vulnerability is something that we have and continue to learn about for ourselves and with respect to our own relationship and ways in which we can be more vulnerable. Because I think for a lot of years there, we were, we were surviving and we were doing a good ham and egg job and, and making it happen when we needed to, if you will, but it was not pretty. And, and, and I think a lot of that came also sort of in denial or masking the pain. You know, we did a lot of that um, either between ourselves and our own marriage, but also just kind of in our own reality, like, putting on a smiley face saying, oh, this next job, it's going to be the good one. When really secretly inside, we were probably fraught with guilt or shame about how the last one didn't necessarily pan out how we had originally spoken about it. So I think that there's there's a lot of that water under the bridge for Mel and I that has been extremely helpful in the tools that we originally had and our willingness to want to be up front and and honest about those with one another. So when you think about marriage, what are the pillars? What are the foundational points that you found in your marriage have helped? Well, <laughs> I think that, you know, one of the things that I remember loving about Mel when I first met her was just this this kind of joie de vie and this freedom of being. And I think we all go through cycles of that sometimes when it's shining and sometimes when it's clouded over. But when we first met, there was very much that. And I remember being, I remember that rubbing off on me and feeling like I was free to be me also. And that doesn't really come continuously or as fast and furious if you don't maintain a level of freedom around your own self-expression. And I think over time for us, that that got a little knocked down or rubbed out. And I found myself, and this sort of gets into another thing that I think is important, is that, you know, I did lose sight of what I needed or what was important to me or, sure, I was like getting up and trying to 
occasionally take care of myself and do things that quote unquote might represent to the fly on the wall uh, as a somebody trying to take care of themselves, but not really. Like pretty much everything that I was doing was for everyone but myself. Mm. And that hurt. I think it hurt my own respect that I had for myself. It hurt my 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 energy, probably my mindset to the point where I did get to a place where I really was not feeling good at all about myself. And so again, it sounds a little trite or or cliche, but just maintaining a pretty intense focus on you know what makes you feel good what makes you laugh what 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 makes you feel alive and and trying to keep that at the forefront and take action around those things inside of a marriage is going to lead to a much healthier relationship with your spouse mm-hmm. than if you think she loves chocolate and flowers and money, and that's what you're trying to bring home every day, thinking that that's going to be a good thing. So that's that's been important. And I think that the, you know, I, you often hear people kind of talk about, hey, you know, I'm really into some of my own personal development, but my spouse is not. What should I do? And I'm not here with a great answer for that, but I can tell you that I understand my wife and our marriage and the relationship we've had for almost 30 years so much better because of her own willingness to unpack her own childhood and upbringing and relationship with her parents and I mean, it's an ongoing, living, breathing thing, but some of her own personal discoveries have been jaw-dropping and heart-opening mm. in a way that, have, that, that has created a lot of empathy and compassion and light bulbs going off like, oh, okay, yeah, now, now I understand how you were being at that time or these things are helpful. And so that has, that has my respect and appreciation for Mel continue to deepen, I think, over the years. Yeah, I think the other thing is just, I mean, you hear it all the time. At least I hope you hear it all the time because you never hear it at the altar when you're getting married. But man, it just takes fucking work. It's just like you got to get after it every day. It's I don't no nobody says that. It's like till death do us part and if and the, the 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 everybody's dancing and having a gay old time and it sounds like life is gonna be blissful from here on. <laughs> but it's just a lot of work. <laughs> and a lot of fun. I mean I think my my last point about what works or what should work or what should be integrated is laughter. I mean mm. And I wouldn't say I was always the best at laughing at myself or laughing at the the situation. I'm better at it now. I think some of that does take time, but laughter is pretty important. Yeah, having fun. And I see from social media when you and Mel are dancing or you're having fun at a wedding or you, you, know, you do make that time to 
actually have fun together, which mm. is which is a big thing. And and laughter is what do they say? Laughter is the best medicine. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's I do think I mean our kids are very, very funny. And I think that I think they get a lot of that from Mel and not necessarily from me. My my people used to think my dad was really funny, but he was really just an excellent joke teller. I'm not sure he was very funny, but I, I, that, that, that trait of being able to remember and tell a good joke didn't get passed down to me either. So <laughs> I think most of the, me either, most of the lighthearted laughter, funny humor side is, is coming from Mel. My dad can joke after joke after joke. He can just say them. And I try to remember one of his 50 jokes and I can't even remember uh, one of his 50 jokes. But it's definitely a talent telling a joke and being a good storyteller when it comes to jokes. Yeah, it's true. I know. There's a bit of a, there, there's, there's quite an art to it all. Yeah. Chris, can I ask, you got some beautiful kids. I know you've got strong relationships with them. What have you learned about being a dad? Mm, it goes by fast. That would be one thing. It is a little hard to believe that. 25 plus years have gone by since we received our first child. So I don't have a solution for slowing down time on that one. But I think that the, I think the more and more I think about how, you know, there's so much talk about how just there's just patterns and history and traumas all generational passed down from <laughs> from decade after decade and even people talking about trying to break generational cycles i mean particularly if they're traumatic or painful but i think one thing i've learned as a dad is just that you need to go <laughs> you need to go venture out there and knock your two front teeth out or break an arm or lose six, $10 million of somebody else's money or all of these things, find yourself into holes of addiction or depression or convince yourself that this thing is the right thing for you to pursue or this man or woman is the right person for you to go spend your and then only to have it maybe unravel and not work out. Like these things are, they are just so intrinsic to the journey of life. And we could sit here all day long as parents and either point out the guardrails or God forbid, build the guardrails for our children in hopes that they don't fall in the ditch. But the ditches are where, obviously, as you know, is where all the learning is. You might get scraped up and muddy and wet and cold and what have you, but that is where the learning is, is the ditch. So why put the guardrail up to some extent? You know, I've got these 20-something-year-old daughters who, of course, from time to time, they call us looking for answers or guidance. And I think they're smart enough to know that whatever we say is not necessarily a silver bullet, but that they got to go lean in and just do it and live this thing called life. And they're, they're 
you know, there, there's there's no way around that. I think maybe more so. Uh, I guess what I'm learning is maybe more so than I think. It's not my responsibility to set up the guardrails, but just share about the ditches that I fell in along the way, because all I really can speak from is my own experience, my own felt experience, and what worked and didn't work, and you know. So I. I don't know. I, I I respect that. Just just like I see my kids and think anything that I mean, Mel and I have both sort of always parented from the standpoint of like, well, anything that we ever did at any given equal age as our kids is like complete open game. You crash the car, you get wasted, you throw up on your your brother, or like you you're smoking reefer, like whatever it is, it's like, okay, been there, done that. Isn't that sort of a rite of passage almost for these kids? Of course, all you want them to do is come home safe. But if they come home safe and they're still in a crumpled ball, mess, disaster, (laughs) you know, whatever it is, you know, even things as difficult as severe mental illness to the extent these things happen. They can be navigated. You can move through them. It takes work, but you're not going to know how to kind of get yourself through it if you don't find yourself in it. So to think that it's our job to like keep them clean of everything is, is laughable. And so I don't know. I, I, it's not like I take my hands off the wheel and be like, okay, it's not my responsibility or I'm not saying it like that, but at the same time, they do need to drive the car and they need to, there's a lot that needs to get figured out by them more so than thinking we can handhold them through the minefield. Yeah, because if we, if we take their experience away from them, it's like if someone would have taken our experience away from us when we were younger, we wouldn't be who we are today. Yeah. Yeah. And even like there's so, you know, the thought that maybe we could parent well enough to have our children avoid some trauma that was really detrimental to us in our own upbringing. I mean, that's also laughable. Like, <laughs> when you least expect it and you're not looking, <laughs> there's going to be something that happens to your child that ends up, at least in their mind, being like the most traumatic thing ever that happened to them that ruined their childhood. And we <laughs> we have no idea. <laughs> so I, I think I think even just like my own, when I think about it, it's like I didn't really have anything traumatic other than. I was majorly loved by my mom up until the age of eight. My dad was physically, emotionally absent. I'm sure he did love me. I just wanted more of it. Then they both started working and I was alone for better part of my teens. And you could chalk that up as honestly a trauma. And I think it is. It, It would. My experience of that falls into the category of something traumatic. And yet... That was my own interpretation. I mean, in the Mm. scheme of things, uh, I was probably getting tons and tons of more love than, I mean, not to compare myself to other people, but it's like, it it was was my own interpretation. It's the way that 
the way that it played out for me in my in my heart and mind. Hmm. I read something the other day, Chris, and it said success as a parent is when your kids get older and they still want to hang out with you. <laughs> well, then it's working for us because they <laughs> they do enjoy our company and we enjoy theirs. Feel very grateful for that. That they actually are psyched to hang out and enjoy our company and they very much can be themselves around us, or at least they tell us they can be and are. So that's nice. Hmm. And you just spent some time in Bataan with your two daughters? Yeah, I did. I got I got almost a little over three weeks with, with Kendall and Sawyer and just had an incredible time. It was certainly have never done anything like that, not only for myself or in that part of the world, but at this stage in their lives also. And just hanging out with two very mature, hilarious, adventurous, and curious kids in a place like Bhutan, which in and of itself is such a special and spiritual, unique place that it was yeah, it was it was unbelievable. And certainly a huge takeaway was just the the level to which I am lucky to not only be able to take a trip like that, but to do it in the company of my own kids where even as we're leaving each other, it wasn't like, it wasn't like we were get me out of here. It was we're sorry to see you go kind of thing. Yeah, it was it was pretty special. I was reading up that Bataan in their gross national happiness report in 2023, 93.6% of the population considered themselves happy. Yeah. Well, if you're asking whether or not I would validate that having been there, I would say that. Of course, I didn't, you know, there was only so many that I met along the way and the language barrier is quite significant. But a couple things about that two things about that. One is it's remote. It's far away. It's off the beaten path. There's only 700,000 people that live there. It's very rugged. And 60% of the people are considered to be nomads, meaning they're not living in some of these cities. The biggest city is 100,000 people. Everything else is you know tiny. And so by way of their isolation a little bit, they have nothing but what's right in front of them to focus on, whether it's time to hay the rice fields or it's time to milk the cow or it's time to, you know, have a plate full of chilies. And so I do think that there's something about their place in the world that fuels a level of presence that must contribute to their level of joy and satisfaction because they also just it's like they live in such a you know it was only in the whatever late 70s where the westerners were even starting to enter their country and mm. you know they didn't the internet and stuff like that is only just coming into play there and influencing their own mindset and so not a lot of comparison for example without a cellular phone on you. So that is really special about what I think contributes to their happiness. I think the other thing is just their being a Buddhist country 
they're they call it tantric Buddhism, which is a very kind of the way I describe it is very self-expressed, very outward in its celebratory nature, you know, festivals and music and dance and paintings and carvings and temples everywhere. And also just the simple fact that they pray a lot and there's not a single prayer in their book that has anything to do with praying for themselves. It's it's very Buddhist, but just to be praying 10, 20, 100 times a day and having every one of those prayers be focused on peace, love, kindness, forgiveness, etc., for all sentient beings <laughs> where you're like every day all day waking up thinking about the well-being of everyone around you mm. or beyond you or in your country or in the world that's really gotta i mean if you and i did that all day every day how the, <laughs> how the hell would we not be actually happy and making us feel good about our own existence versus like waking up and being like, oh man, like if I don't get that deal today or, you know, I got to go buy this thing or fuck my car's broken or like whatever the things are that we, <laughs> we get caught up in. Got to contribute to gross national happiness, I would think. And their values, the Buddhist values is they encourage people in Bhutan to focus on what they have and be grateful for it and not focus on what they don't. And that's probably, if you go through the happiness report of other countries, many of us do get stuck in that where we're unhappy because we don't have what we want and we lose sight of actually what's right in front of us. And, and as you've said earlier on in the conversation today, Chris, the present, or as Lou would say, the present. <laughs> yeah for sure yeah they're very proud in a in a very very humble kind of way and a lot of that actually stems from just their own sort of nationalism and feeling a sense of purpose in maintaining their independence between China to the north and India to the south. And this is tiny little, like, it's a miracle that they're actually still kind of not just haven't been gobbled up by some other international giant to be leveraged for its timber or natural resource, whatever it might be. Because the Western world, we, you see it all the time. It's like the tribes that they find in the Amazon that are in the forest that have never been touched, they find them and they're like, oh, we need to kind of research and know and we need to talk to these people. And these people are like, just leave us alone. The Westerners feel like that they've kind of, oh, we can give them, we can give them food and we can give them this. Hang on, these guys have been living for thousands of years by themselves. They don't need. And, and, and a lot of indigenous populations around the world have taken on a lot of the Western lifestyle, and it's actually been detrimental to themselves, their being, their way of life, their health. 
So it's 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 an interesting thing, and I think it's great that Bhutan has has been able to keep a lot of their identity. I suppose it's a struggle. I mean, the the problem is the youth. They come down out of their nomadic villages and they get educated in the cities and then they get connected to technology and then they learn what's going on outside of their own country. And many of them are moving to your country. Major exodus of Bhutanese to Australia, at least temporarily for education and wealth creation and these kinds of things you know many of them maybe do go back to bhutan but many are not because they necessarily dislike their own country or what they have there but they're they're clamoring for something more bigger better and they see it existing outside of their own country and it's hard to stop that that flow that tide that is happening with the youth it's a big worry amongst the monarchy in Bhutan as to how they can inspire people to want to stick around and make a life of being a good providing citizen of Bhutan rather than like moving to Australia and just checking out. Yeah, yeah. Now, it's not Bhutan, but... You founded Soul Degree in Vermont. Yes. <laughs> With pretty similar thoughts of being able to check out of everyday life and reflect and have some of that peace. Tell me where the seed was planted. I think the seed was planted. Uh, I was on my deck summer afternoon chatting with a friend of mine, Boyd Falconer. It was actually a somewhat new friend that I had met. I was in Boston. He was living out in Ann Arbor, Michigan, working for University of Michigan. You know, we were sitting there and I don't know what we were talking about, but we were laughing and we were crying and we were covering all sorts of deeply personal subjects. And I think it was soon or Right around that time, we had also spent four days in Vermont cycling around. And that was kind of the the seed, really the very early seed of this idea that being able to draw the blinds on the busyness of our lives and step into a more peaceful, natural environment in the company of men who wanted to go a little deeper about whatever was going on, whether it be personal or yeah, I've never really been, I mean, I love sports and I'm an athletic guy, but staying in touch with that or staying in touch with politics or you know, world affairs, that that's not what I'm talking about. It's more just sort of what what is going on for us personally, emotionally, psychologically, um, spiritually. And I think that <laughs> without really knowing it at the time, this was very much missing in my life. And so 
I think one thing led to another and Boyd and I met again with another friend of mine and sort of loosely talked about, well, maybe if we put a weekend together and that seed of an idea started to kind of blossom into something a little bit more substantial than just a weekend and kind of got into this conversation about, well, what's the point and why are guys going to do this? And how can we, you know, at one point we talked about like, well, how can we make it so that it is appealing to guys? And then in the end, I was like, hang on a second. At the moment, I just want to make it so that I'm psyched about it. (laughs) So selfishly, it was kind of like, how do I, how do I put something together that really serves me? Because I was in a, a, a horrible place at the time. I did really need something. I was, uh, and I, I don't say this because I don't think Soul Degree necessarily has to serve people who are down and out in hard times or dealing with a tough change, or, but I was at the time. And I didn't realize how badly I needed a perspective check on my own situation by way of hearing through the eyes and words of others. And, you know, I, I had at the time I had at this point achieved my 200 hour certification as a yoga instructor. I had spent over a year in this Buddhist immersion program that also trained me to be a meditation guide. These things were kind of in my back pocket, although I hadn't really been leveraging them. I I didn't get my yoga training to be an instructor. I got it because I was deeply curious about just sort of learning about the, the, the whole world of yoga, if you will. But I think the more and more I thought about it, the more and more I thought stepping into a wilderness backdrop and slowing things down using tools like yoga and meditation and meals together and hiking and fireside chats and stuff, that these these would be modalities that would allow for not only deeper, healthier conversation, but they would also just allow like our whole nervous system to like come down. And again, I, I didn't really know it at the time, but at least I didn't put my finger on it, but I, I can now see that these there were moments in my childhood where I was in the company of my family on a camping trip or something like that where I truly did feel not only most present with myself, I felt like I could be who I was, no pretense or anything. But I also looked around and saw my brothers and my father and my mother also, I don't know, just behaving a little bit different, a little more calm and peaceful themselves, a little more honest and true to their nature without even really knowing, of course, what that meant. But I think I did feel that. I sensed that. And so I believe this is part of what drew me to even conceive of this idea, which is now Soul Degree and um, how it came together. And it was definitely a bit of an evolution. You know, I've been at it for eight years now and led a bunch of these. And 
it hasn't changed dramatically from the beginning, but there's definitely been a an appropriate level of evolution in how it gets put together and and also kind of what about it is important to me for a moment there i almost got caught up in thinking that what needed to be important was more bigger better and that i got to do a lot of these things and i got to impact as many guys as i can and I'm glad I didn't run down that lane. I really just love the intimate nature of it and how I get to be a participant in it and bring my own life to the table, not just bring my leadership to the table. And I really appreciate that for myself. Like I'm very grateful that I've kind of arrived at this choice to have the experience be not reaching for as many clients or participants or guests as I can, but doing it twice a year and being a student of it as much as I am a leader of it. And that took me a while to kind of come full circle around to that and realize like this is this is true to me and it's it's okay that i'm choosing to impact 24 guys through two retreats and you know some of the surrounding programming that i offer around each retreat but that that's okay and talk about like having to deprogram the masculine mindset of because naturally the question's always been like, all right, so you do one of these? Oh, you do two of these a year? Great. Like, what are you going to do next year? What, how are you going to grow this thing? What's your, what's your purpose here? <laughs> <laughs> and of course, it's easy to just quickly go down the rabbit hole of, yeah, let's pen out a business plan that says, here's how we're going to go, you know, generate $100 million doing this. And I'm also very, very lucky to not have to be forced into making that decision either because I do happen to be in a relationship with somebody who is handling a good bit of that heavy lifting and happy doing it and doing it well. And so, you know, it might be a different circumstance if, you know, I had a spouse that was unable to work and there was just me. Uh, maybe I would make different choices. Yeah, I attended the summer retreat in Vermont and the Soul Degree Brothers, I know they're going to listen to this, but you know, seriously, I get a bit teary because the time we all spent together was amazing. The bonds that we, we made were probably far outweighed my... <clears throat> I'm going to choke up here. <laughs> but far outweighed my expectations and the strength that those guys give me now <clears throat> is uh, is pretty special. And from the moment we arrived and then we started doing introductions, it was like we were brothers, you know. And my brother and I did a retreat recently uh, inspired by yours and didn't really have it as structured. We just kind of went, let's just, let's just run one. 
and and my brother turned to me when we're going to bed after the first night and he said to me he just shook his head and he went how how we didn't have to facilitate conversation or prompt any kind of questions he said the first day just flowed people were just talking vulnerably they were talking about their lives their relationships their challenges their childhoods their relationships with their parents their kids all these things and it, i said yeah man this is this is why this is why we've been talking about doing men's retreats and then we've linked with chris and and it was just brilliant and we did a few hikes and but it's just amazing but i think the key thing is and mark and i have been through things redundancies health issues I said to Mark, and I've said to you this as well, Chris, you weren't just a host and, as you say, you kind of played full out, right? You're a full participant in this and I don't think it would work. I don't think it would be as authentic. I don't think it would be as genuine. I don't think that it would have the cut through and the level of vulnerability if you as the host didn't play that way yeah well you joke that you and your brother said oh well we didn't have to do anything but i i probably tend to disagree i i suspect that who you are and who you have been even in the ask or the invitation that you extended to these men to participate on this thing revealed a character who's willing to be vulnerable Mm. or has demonstrated that before. So yes, on day one, the table was partially set probably by you and Mark in in the quality of human that you are. And that's important. I think you're, you were inviting them with some of that being the purpose, Hmm. which is special. And I think it also shows that with the right setting, set and setting, as they say, you can accomplish a lot by way of giving people the time and the space and can also learn a lot, which is really what I think often sets us at ease a little bit more or i mean i was going to ask you about like this you you say that you continue to draw strength from this brotherhood from the retreat and the, what is that like how do you articulate what you you know you don't talk to them every day you're not seeing them every day after the fact but what how does that strength play out what do, what are you drawing upon i think all the conversations that we had with each other and as vulnerable as they were we were all talking very much about our hopes, dreams, the person we want to be, the person we want to aim to be as a husband, as a father, as a friend, as a colleague, you know, in our career. And you took us through some activities where we we did things like visionary meditation. And it was that sitting in that visionary meditation led to me finally after two or so years kind of going, I'm doing a podcast. I am doing this thing, right? And I got back and I've done it, right? You sure have. Proud of you. And for me, 
that gave me so much strength. And, and then that's pushed me out of my comfort zone to do the podcast. And then I get the feedback and I interview some amazing people. And I've gone, no, this is, I can do this now, right? So it's kind of, it gives me strength in the things that we can push through. And I think each of us had a power. But I think knowing that, and I kind of call on it, and I know a couple of the guys have said it as well, but for me, if I ever get to something that I doubt myself or I'm not sure about, or it might be leaning into a little bit of discomfort, I just go, what would my brothers say? Mm. What would my soul degree brothers say? And I almost feel that I've got this presence from that retreat, this presence of everyone. And obviously this year you've run the huddle as well as part of soul degree, but I almost feel like we're in a huddle and anything is possible. If you're in a, if you're in a huddle, right, if we're all huddled around, arms locked in just in that moment, how do you feel? You feel empowered. You feel confident. You feel like people have got your back. And I think that's what I draw on. I think that's what pushes me forward is I feel like I'm in a scrum to a certain point. I don't know what you call it in America, yeah, but we call it a sure. scrum. And people are, are locked in and we can kind of tackle anything. And I think that's what I draw upon. Yeah. It's. So, but what you speak of is a is a camaraderie, a connectedness, a a knowing that you really are not marching down the road alone. It's not the what might get said by that brotherhood in the scrum, mm. which I think is really profound because. If you were in that huddle with those 12 guys, you would get 12 very, very thoughtful, deep responses to your situation, but they would not all be the same. And so (laughs) you can't, you know, you can't, you can't draw on the answer. You can just draw on the feeling, which I love what you said. Like there, there is that that sense of um, I'm in this together. Mm. Mm. And I think when we did one of those last exercises on the, the final day, Chris, where we expressed that gratitude and that power in that circle, that's kind of what I'm talking about. There's an energy there. Mm. And, and for me, and I think a lot of the other guys have as well, and Lou was saying the other day in our in our huddle, you know, he's like, I'm finally probably the happiest I've been in my life because he's he's connected to certain things. And he said Soul Degree has unlocked a lot of that. But I think that energy of that circle where we were all you were taking us through some prompts and we were kind of being grateful for different things, for strength, for our presence in that retreat over those four or five days. I get goosebumps now. I can feel that energy still now. And I'm in Australia, right? You guys are all in America. But <laughs> for me, I, I carry that with me. That, that energy is still plugged in. Mm. I'm so glad. I feel that too. I, I really do. I 
there's not a, you know, there's, you've heard me say this, but there's just, there's a lot of great, great men out there. And every single one that has put themselves in a position to participate in soul degree has had a huge heart Mm. and so much to offer the group in it of itself, but also the world at large. And has also got a a pretty open mind uh, Mm. that that their, Mm. their sense of adventure for putting themselves in a situation like that does not fall on deaf ears. Like I think it, it takes, it takes quite a bit of courage and shit thousands of miles of courage on top of everything else for somebody like yourself to travel from Australia up to Vermont to attend this thing. You're, <laughs> you've certainly traveled the farthest young man. And I'm coming back. Hey man, I can't wait to see you. <laughs> yeah. Well, that is the other thing, right? It's one thing to attend and uh, attend a retreat and get value from it and go back home and step into what is real and pressing and apply some of those things. It's, it never kind of ends there. It it can be, I think experiences like this can change the trajectory of your life, but you still need to go live your life and navigate the, the ups and downs and, the lefts and rights. It's it's just the way it rolls. We found in our recent retreat, we probably touched on a little bit in Soul Degree as well as that guys have this tough exterior. We've kind of got this armor on. We've got to be tough. We've got to be the provider. We've got to be the the one that, that stands firm and is the protector. And the question was put out there around Obviously, Soul Degree allows guys to unlock their softer side, I suppose, and dig into some of the things that they actually really feel but may not feel that they can actually communicate to their partners, to their friends, to their family. We put out there and said, the question was posed, women, females, our partners, our wives want us or say they want us to, want to see our softer side, but do they? Because sometimes when you show your softer side, then it's like, no, 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 I want you to be my protector. I don't, you're here to protect me. I don't want to see, I don't want to see your softer side. So that was a really interesting conversation that we had and something that I think is part of the, part of the challenge of going to a soul degree unpacking a lot of this, getting to the softer side and then walking back into everyday life where you may not be, you've kind of got to put the armor back on. And I suppose for me, an example is I remember telling Tracy, my wife, about a a soul degree and a couple of things. And I said, oh, I actually cried. And I said, I don't like to cry in front of you. I, I cry secretly. And she said to me, but I want you to cry with me. And that was quite a, a really nice moment because I was like, ah, yeah, why do I cry behind 
closed doors. Why do I cry in secret? And it was nice for her to say, cry with me. But I had to be taken to that level through soul degree. But not, not everyone would have the same experience of saying, you know, I cried behind. You know, some would go, oh, well, what are you crying for? You got nothing to cry for, right? Like it kind of gets dismissed. Obviously for me, Tracy said to me, cry with me. And, and, and that, was, that was nice, you know. And having that growth environment where, and Tracy and I are getting a lot better at it, being able to communicate, we understand a lot more about each other. And sometimes the conversations you have to have aren't the easiest. Yeah. No, but I, I mean, I think that with your comment about softer side, you know, what do our, our partners want? There's no question about it. They want to experience our masculine energy. But we lose sight of the fact that there is parts of being masculine that include softness. <laughs> mm. Of course, we get berated because there's just this immediate default to what constitutes masculine behavior. And, you know, somebody said, I can't remember whether it was on our retreat. Maybe it was. I think it was. It was, so, it was one of the more profound kind of reflections on their experience of being on retreat was like, you know, they said, I feel like I just had a, somebody gave me a looking glass into seeing humanity. Mm. And of course, that statement or that comment was coming from having just experienced really the lives of 12 other guys on retreat and seen so many different ways in which people are existing out there that it gave them that like, wow, that just holistic view of what it means to be human. And I think that that is a lot of like what Tracy's saying, which is it's not about masculinity or softness or being emotional or it's just about being human and humans cry. <laughs> now, many of us men who are humans resist crying for whatever reasons, but it is a very human thing that when we see people do it, it, it just takes, takes that pretense down a notch. Mm. Yeah. Well, anyone listening to this, I would thoroughly recommend to wherever you are in the world to get over to Vermont and get onto a soul degree because for me, it's just been an amazing experience and, uh, and one that I'll cherish and, and the friendships that we'll have for the rest of our lives. And I'm looking forward to getting to Sedona yeah. in February and connecting with some, some more brothers. Yeah, and you will. That's the whole point of those reunions and certainly plan to grow that network it's one thing to have that experience with 12 men and it is intimate and personal and you feel bonded with those guys. But when you get into these reunion environments and you realize like any one of the other, however many guys at the reunion could have very easily been at your retreat and that there is a sort of an instant connection that 
you have by way of having been through the experience. So I, I really do hope that you have that for yourself in Sedona. I think you will. Yeah, that's right. Chris, you've been through different levels of career to where you are now, but how has success changed for you in life? Yeah, just I think it shifted from wallet to heart kind of thing. Of course, like we talked about earlier, my my my, my tendency was to to define success early in my in my life around achievement and doing and I think that I for all of those years I really struggled to be able to look in the mirror and see a good guy that I loved and respected and I also during those years deemed myself failing so there was it was it was all directly tied to one another the perception in my mind that I was failing or not succeeding and also the disrespect or dislike I had for myself and so I, I would say that the success these days just has so much more to do with me feeling good about me and me taking on things and following through on things that make me feel good about me. And it might sound a little selfish or myopic, but it helps me be a better person and helps me be happier and helps me feel successful, if you will, if that's the term we're using. It's a tough term, you know, tough term for guys, success, successful, and what constitutes that. That's, it's a, that's a big one. And I think it's a, it's been a real moving target over the last several decades around what is that for guys? Yeah. I really appreciate that reflection for you on success. Throughout your life, who's been your greatest teacher? Mm. I mean, probably my mom and dad with, I mean, Mel's a close second in that we've learned so much together, you know, being in the trenches together. So I wouldn't say that, you know, I, I sort of hold Mel out there as being a teacher of sorts, but the way in which we have collaborated in our lifelong learning has been pretty profound. But I think that, and even with my parents for that matter, you know, they, they certainly were not necessarily there with dozens of, let me teach you this life lesson and let me teach you this, or it's mostly by way of, as I said earlier, taking the time to understand where they came from and even where their own parents came from to really understand who they were when I was in vitro, two years old, five years old, 10 years old, 15, et cetera and seeing how their own lived experience and in many cases just shitty situations or choices that they certainly made for themselves lent themselves to parenting a certain way that of course shaped me Hmm. for who i am today and so they i would say that that's partially why i put them up there is because i i have learned directly, indirectly, vicariously, however you want to put it, through them. Chris, 
if you were heading on a, a hike, you were packing your backpack, and as you were about to head out, you could only grab one book off the bookshelf, <laughs> what would it be? You know the answer to that, young man. It's right next to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's such a gift, that book. I, when I first got into meditation, I I struggled with it like many do. And I thought, God, this is, I can't quiet my mind and I'm failing at this thing. And a friend of mine was like, oh, well, I I don't meditate to try to quiet my mind. I I just like read a passage from this book and then sit and close my eyes and Mm -hmm. try to breathe into some of those things. And it just shifted my thinking about ways in which you can wade into the meditation waters. It doesn't have to be all about quietness and stillness and all that stuff. It's, it can be, and that, I've enjoyed that too. But that finding that author, Mark Nepo, was really a, a came at the right time for me in my life. And is still like, it's just a gift that keeps on giving. Yeah, I love the book. As soon as you read a passage from it, I I bought it straight away and and I use it regularly. And I read some passages and introduced the guys to it at our men's retreat as well, which was brilliant. On our last day, I I read a couple of passages. It's the Book of Awakening by Mark Nepo, but it's just beautiful. And sometimes it's not every day, but from time to time, I'll just grab the book and I'll go, "What, what day? And I'll flick through to the day and it's like doing a virtues pick. It's like yeah. doing anything like that. It speaks to you. And it the book, at our last breakfast, I actually had a number of books because I buy books. If I like something, I'll go, I'm going to buy a few books and Matthew McConaughey, Green Lights and, and some of the other books that I had there. And I said, you don't choose a book, a book chooses you. So I said, grab a, grab a book and take a book with you. And there was a reason that you're here and there's a reason that you're going to grab a book. But that that book, the book of awakening was just, it's been, it's been fantastic. And I've recommended it to a number of people and, and those listening as we both would, we, we both recommend it because it just gets you to dig a little bit deeper and it does have exercises in there as well. But as you say, just reading, closing your eyes and just breathing and taking the time to actually dig a little bit deeper into what does that mean for you? Mm. So great that you have put one of these together and it you had a good experience with it, you and your brother, like you guys were talking about a few years ago. We're looking at doing it, a, doing a couple next year and even maybe a dads and lads as well, Yeah, which will be good as well. I got an email from somebody down in Australia who's interested in he reached out to me just like you did many years ago, like, oh, I love what you're doing. Maybe we could do something like that in Australia. I'll put you guys in touch. Maybe maybe he wants to jump in on your entourage there. I'd be good. I don't know where he is. That'd be awesome. Even just to connect if someone that's being drawn to something like Soul Degree, um, yeah. he's someone I want to have a chat to, which would be awesome. <laughs> Last question, Chris. If you can go back to your teens and chat to young Chris. What's some advice you'd give to him to help him along the path moving forward? Mm. I think that there'd be just a couple of pieces. Like one is I would just tell myself that there really is no reason I need to or should feel compelled 
to be like my parents, even though they're the only role model that you kind of have in front of you. Don't lose sight of sort of looking at all the people that you maybe come across or the ideas or the books or whatever you read, and then choosing for yourself who you wish to be. Obviously, easier said than done when you're in your teens, but I really just saw so much external validation as we often do. As a young teen, I was so insecure thinking I needed to perform on the basketball court and be a good student and you know, look cute, be able to drink like the best of them and blah, blah, blah. And it was all just outside of me. And so I would say that would be one thing. And also just, I ended up doing a lot of experimentation in my 20s, traveling and working and so forth. But I didn't relate to it like it was experimentation. I berated myself for thinking that, you know, me moving from being a commodity trader to a management consultant to an entrepreneur was bad. And I think I would give advice to my younger self to say that don't choose until you're in your 30s. And definitely use your 20s to try on lots of things and to be at ease and more patient with the fact that you will figure out, if you give it time, Hmm. what speaks to you and what lights you up and how and why you might feel compelled to invest the amount of time and effort we often do in our careers and professions. But, you know, that, that if you, you know, I think, I think we, we jump out of, if we are so lucky to go to college, we jump out of college thinking we need to have it all figured out in a couple of years and otherwise we're fucked. And Mm. that's just, that's definitely where I was. And I wish I had sort of, you know, taken my foot off the accelerator a little bit and, and been okay with some of those choices rather than kill myself over them. I probably would have performed better too, you know, because I I think there was a lot of often doubt. Even though I made the choice or the choices, I I often doubted them before or after the fact. Mm. I love that second piece of advice. That's awesome. Don't don't decide to your 30s just and live in your 20s. Yeah. And, you know, like whatever, you can get after it if you will, but don't let the moss grow and, and, but try try like try and you know the idea of like failing early and often kind of thing as people say again so much easier said than done the the thought of failing in your 20s just it's like poke my eyes out who the hell wants to have that on their quote unquote track record but it is true it's kind of like you know our kids are like how are you guys how are you and mel like how's your relationship so good like how how come you're still so in love and part of our answer to that is is that well we dated a lot of women and men before we met so that when we did meet we were really pretty clear on what we thought we wanted or needed from a a partner and i guess the same would hold true for maybe using your 20s as a time of your life to stick your toe in a lot of different waters so that you got a wider 
frame of reference. Mm. Yeah. In these days, a lot of the younger generation feel like they have to have it all sorted all together in their early 20s, right? They need to... Yeah. Our daughter, she's got two investment properties and a couple of years ago, she said that she goes, oh, I just, I'm just not going anywhere in life. I'm like, what? You've got a good job. You've got a couple of investment properties. You've got a car. You, But she thought she hadn't achieved it really any level of success. And it was like, so it's, it's, it's perspective, I suppose, that when you've got social media and Instagram and totally. everything these days where you've got 18-year-olds posing on social media in their Lamborghinis, yeah. it's, it's an interesting one. And that's probably a whole nother episode and we could probably get <laughs> – we could probably get some different influences into there, but that's a whole different kettle of fish. Chris, I've appreciated your time today. Love you as a brother, mate. It's been amazing to connect with you, to call you a friend, and I'm looking forward to having one of those big Chris Robbins hugs in in February in Sedona (laughs) and Phoenix. For those that want to reach out to you and connect with you, what's the best way to do that? It's at Soul Degree, either at Soul Degree on Instagram or souldegree.com is the best way. Yeah, perfect. And I know there's some great content that you post and obviously the website's got a video, um, more information in regards to what Soul Degree is. I think we covered a lot of it, but yeah, it, it's been an awesome journey so far. I've loved connecting and I look forward to the journey moving forward. Well, me too. I'm so glad you're, you are a part of the journey now as of this year, or I suppose maybe the last couple of years. So thank you for being in it and thank you for the invitation to be here and so proud of you for your for the work you've done not just for yourself but also here on this in this podcast you're putting together it's fantastic so thank you well it only happens when i have people such as yourself and and those that join me to to share their vulnerability their stories their reflections their thoughts but hopefully inspires other people and and really makes other people sit there and and feel a little less alone. Yeah, well, amen to that. (laughs) All good. Look forward to talking again soon. All right. Thanks a lot, Steve. Thanks, mate. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. It's been great to have you along for the ride. Remember to hit subscribe and share this episode with a friend. Maybe just one person you think could benefit from what was just shared. Also, if you haven't connected with me yet, you can find me on Instagram at the Steve Hodgson and also share underscore underscore podcast. I'll catch you on the next episode. That was awesome. That's good. <laughs>